Nehemiah chapter 1 says this, The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. This is the word of the Lord. Individualism dominates every aspect of our lives. And I don't think there's a country in the globe that is more individualistic than our American society. Uh, We often find ourselves selfishly fumbling through life with little focus on anyone but ourselves or maybe those close to us. We are inundated with selfish tendencies. Uh, If you've spent more than five minutes on Facebook and uh, maybe you're a part of, you're privileged enough to be a part of one of those community pages uh, for your local community, maybe Mount Washington or Shepherdsville, or even your, your little local neighborhood. I know my neighborhood that I live in uh, has its own little community page where everybody can tattletale on each other, right? Uh, somebody got called out last week because there was a weed, you know, two and a half foot tall within view of somebody, right? God forbid in my space that you would allow a weed to grow more than two feet tall. Uh, Other times you can read on those about how someone may be aggravated because the cashier might have taken longer than 30 seconds to say hello to them. Uh, Maybe they took too long to check out their groceries. Maybe, God forbid, somebody put their blinker on and got in front of you while you were trying to speed down Interstate 65 towards Louisville, right? And they got into your space. Uh, Maybe they cleaned their windshield because you were practically attached to their bumper, right? You ever do that trick, hit the, the, the water thing on the windshield and it sprays the guy behind you? I've never done that. <laughs> I may have just lied from the front of uh, the pulpit here. We're inundated with selfish tendencies. And like I said, it takes one five-minute look through social media uh, to read how someone might be offended by somebody else because someone else encroached on their space. Maybe someone cut you off in traffic. Uh, We can go on and on. Uh, TV ad after TV ad, right? You remember Burger King back in the day? Have it your way. Uh, Butterfinger. I like Butterfingers. You better not lay a finger on my Butterfinger, right? The candy bars. We're selfish people. And yet it's not supposed to be this way. We were created for something better than this. We often refer to God's kingdom. Maybe you've heard of God's kingdom referred to it this way. The, the upside-down kingdom, have you guys ever heard of it referred to that way? Well, I have, so just act like you've heard it referred to that way. The upside-down kingdom. Uh, it doesn't make much sense because it commands, God's kingdom commands that we love God and we love others, which is very much against the tendencies of the world, right? The world says, be yourself, love yourself. You do you, all of those things. You only live once. It doesn't make sense to us. Yet what if we challenge that assumption? That God's kingdom, in fact, is 
right side up. It's the right way because it's God's way. It's God's intention that we would love him and love others. It's the commands of scripture. Jesus calls that the greatest commandment, right? Love God, love others. And I would say that God has it right. Why? Because his word tells us so. We call this the truth. It's the truth of God's word. And Nehemiah gives us a picture of a godly man with a kingdom mindset. He loved God and loved others. His kin, his family, his people are his concern. And we're going to learn in in the coming weeks and months that he was willing to sacrifice greatly for his people. In Nehemiah, we witness the people of God working together for the greater good of the nation. And God's people coming together in spiritual unity as they renew their commitment to God's covenant. Nehemiah is not about individualism. But rather, in a few weeks, we'll get to chapter 3 where you read of individual after individual after individual right next to their brother together as a team rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem. Coming together as a group to carry out uh, the plan of God. But I want to make sure we all understand, where is Nehemiah in history? So we have a timeline this morning. We'll throw it up. Hopefully that comes across well. There it is. So we are all the way down towards the end there. I know it's kind of hard to read. It says post-exile. That's kind of where Ezra and Nehemiah and Esther reside in history. And so I want to run through a little bit of history. Ezra and Nehemiah round out the historical narratives of the Old Testament. In many ancient manuscripts, you'll find Ezra and Nehemiah are linked together as one book. And if you read both of them, you will find uh, that there's history occurring concurrently in the leadership of both Ezra and Nehemiah. Actually, Ezra will kind of come on the stage within this series. Ezra is focused on this, on the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. And Nehemiah is focused on the rebuilding of Jerusalem's city walls. So we're kind of getting the context of where we're at. Nehemiah takes place in what scholars refer to as the post-exilic era of Israel's history. It's after their exile. And in order to help you understand where this lands within biblical history, we'll take a little road trip back in time and work our way to where the story lands uh, in history, where we're going to pick it up in Nehemiah. We're not going to go all the way back to the beginning. We're going to go to Exodus. Okay, we're going to start in Exodus. In Exodus, God calls his people out of Egypt. Uh, They were an enslaved people. And through a number of miraculous events, God shows his, his power and might over the worldly powers. You see, Pharaoh was the leader of Egypt. He would have been viewed as a god. And God shows that he's a lowercase g God and God is the uppercase G God, right? Because he does all these, he sends all these plagues to have his people released. He shows he is in control. And so through a number of miraculous events, frees his people, the Israelites, from the bondage of slavery under the leadership of a fellow named Moses. You guys ever heard of him before? Moses. But because of sin, Israel wanders in the desert for, wait for this, 40 years. 40 years they wander. 
because they question God's goodness. Forty years awaiting their entrance into the promised land. Because the sinful generation that doubted God's goodness needed to pass away. And it was under the leadership of a man named Joshua, not Moses, that God brings the Israelites into the promised land. And this time Israel is established as a nation, but they were still tribal in nature. Okay, they had different tribes. Tribal in, in governance. They were led by a series of what the Bible calls judges, and there's a book named that, the book of Judges. These judges were more or less deliverers of God's people in times of distress, uh, aiding and leading them in times of oppression, which was always due to what? Their sin. And they were also administrators of justice and provided leadership to the tribal groups within Israel. Emerging from this period of time, Israel desires a king, okay? Because apparently God is not a good enough king for them. So they desire a king. And a man named Saul emerges as the first king of Israel. Now Saul is a man's man, okay? We can imagine him as like the prototypical dude of dudes. He's got muscles, like, you ever seen those guys that are so muscular that it looks like they have a, like, their shoulders go into another, like, suit of muscles? I think we can envision Saul as being this type of guy. I mean, he was the dude. Probably had long, flowing hair, tall, dark, and handsome. It says, Scripture says he was like a foot taller than everybody else. He's a big, muscular dude. And yet, ultimately, what? We find out from God's Word that he was a poor leader. He was insecure. He sinned and doubted God. And then we have a special figure arrive on the scene, David. Okay? The little shepherd, harp-playing son of Jesse is God's chosen king of Israel. Now, don't, don't judge David too harshly, okay, on her stature. He, scripture says he killed wild animals with his bare hands. That's better than what you guys can do. I think here in Kentucky, you guys, like, you wait out in the field and throw some corn out there, feed the wildlife for a good year, get them fat and happy, and then you hang out up in the trees and pa Pat yourself on the back. We're man's man, right? David killed wild animals with his bare hands, okay? So give him his due respect. He may have been the shepherd boy playing the harp, but he was a bad dude himself. Bad in a good way. Under the leadership of David, Israel flourishes, and their borders are secure. All of Israel's enemies are, are kept at bay. And then as David fades from the scene, leadership is handed over to his son, Solomon. Okay, Solomon, the son of Bathsheba and David. Okay, A little sin in the story here. If you guys recall, uh, David looked upon Bathsheba, this beautiful woman who was married commits adultery with her, then to cover up his sin, murders her husband, everything unravels. But we see David's heart, a man that Scripture calls a man after God's own heart, because when he is confronted with his sin, he says, God, I have sinned against you and you alone. We begin to see how God works 
It's the faith of our hearts that is saving grace. It's not necessarily all the good actions that we have, but, but David was humble that when he was confronted, he fell on his face before God and said, God, I, I have sinned before you and you alone. And so we have Solomon, the, the son of this sinful relationship. And under his leadership, the, the nation continues to flourish. Solomon builds the temple. But we begin to see cracks start to emerge in the kingdom. And subsequently, the children of Solomon can't, can't hold the nation together. And the kingdom splits in two. We have a northern kingdom, Israel. And a southern kingdom, Judah. Uh, the northern kingdom is led by wicked leader after wicked leader after wicked leader after wicked leader, which leads to their fall to the Assyrians, who were the world power at the time, in 722 BC, around that time. And the people from Israel, from the northern kingdom, are kind of just taken and spread out, and we just don't really hear about much about them again. Uh, the southern kingdom, Judah fares a little bit better. You see, instead of wicked king after wicked king after wicked king after wicked king, they have wicked king, good king, wicked king, wicked king, good king. You get my drift? But eventually they too fall about 136 years later to the then world power, the Babylonians. Where the people are exiled to Babylon, most of them, some to Egypt, and there was a poor, probably lower class uh, remnant that remained in Judah in this demolished, ruined land. And they likely lived really difficult lives. So Babylon's in control. After this, Persia, you guys ever heard of Persia, the Persian Empire? They show up on the scene, they decide that they're going to conquer the world. And so we have the Assyrians, right? Then they're conquered by the Babylonians, who were conquered by the Persians, which brings us to Second uh, Chronicles. If you want to turn in your Bibles to Second Chronicles, or you can look to the screen. We'll have it on the screen for you. Chapter 36. I know all of you have Second Chronicles memorized, right? We spend so much time in that book. Turn to Second Chronicles 36. If you're in Nehemiah, it's probably just a few pages to the left. 36, 22 to 23. God's word says this. In the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, in order to fulfill the word of the Lord spoken by Jeremiah, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia, to make a proclamation throughout his realm and also to put it in writing. Verse 23, this is what Cyrus, king of Persia, says. The Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth. And he has appointed me to build a temple for him at Jerusalem in Judah. Any of his people among you may go up. And may the Lord, their God, be with them. And so this is where we are at somewhat in the story. We already have Ezra, right? We talked about Ezra and Nehemiah being linked together. So you have Ezra's already on the scene, and actually if you read the beginning of the book of Ezra, you'll find this same declaration right at the beginning of that book. 
And so Ezra is sent back and they're rebuilding the temple. And we're picking up the story a little bit further down the road uh, where they're rebuilding the city walls. And this morning I want to focus, so now that you know where we're at in the context of history, I also want to note, because some of you, I'm not saying this in a condescending way, but maybe some of you don't know this, this has all occurred before Jesus, okay, in history. So Jesus has not yet come onto the scene in his earthly person yet, okay? He is still with his Father in heaven, okay? So he will come a little bit later to the earth, all right? So as we enter into the narrative of Nehemiah, I want us to note a few key themes, and this is what we're going to be focusing on this morning. We're laying some groundwork here today. We know the history now behind this book and this story, and now we're going to focus on a few key themes that are going to be revealed to us this week and also in the coming weeks. And our first theme is going to be this. I forgot to note this. Time out for just a second. We had some technical difficulties this week. And you guys usually have a bulletin, right, with fill in the blanks. Our copy machine came under some sort of demonic oppression this, uh, this last week. And it's not, we weren't able to print the bulletin. So there should be a page with a kind of a reading guide for the coming weeks that you guys can write on the back of. I apologize that that happened. Uh, but I would encourage you to take notes because uh, this, I think, in my opinion, is going to be good stuff for you. So with that, now we can dive back in. Time in, right? Okay. So God cares, our first point this morning, God cares about human flourishing, okay? And you should too. And I should too, okay? God cares about human flourishing, and I should too. How do we know that God cares? Again, Second Chronicles thirty-six twenty-two. the latter part of that verse says this, the Lord moved the heart of Cyrus, king of Persia. The Lord moved his heart. The Lord stirred within him this desire to allow God's people to go back to their land. Isn't God so good? And after they had been so sinful to him, time and time and time and time again, yet God comes through once again, releasing them back to their land. God cares about human flourishing, and I should too. We see it in the character of Nehemiah. Verse 4 says, When I heard these things, this is Nehemiah, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. You see, because... Nehemiah had God-like, he had godly character. He cared about his people too, just as much as, as God did. And when he heard of their, of their plight, of their condition, it broke his heart. Because what had happened is, the people had been allowed to go back and, and rebuild the temple, and then the kings kind of changed their mind back and forth. They put a stop to it, then they said, go. Stop, go, stop, go. You see, Jerusalem, they're rebuilding the temple, okay? But Jerusalem was a city without walls. How do we know that? Verse 3, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Does that mean the walls were in good condition? No. They were broken down. Jerusalem was 
a city without walls. These people were exposed as a wall was the only means of protection in that day and age. Okay, there was no Air Force patrolling. Uh, There was no radar to warn of, of oncoming invaders. There wasn't a Coast Guard out patrolling the seas to protect Israel. A city without walls was a sitting duck to the hostile uh, peoples that surrounded Jerusalem. And, and trust me, if you read this narrative, if you read Ezra and Nehemiah, the people around Jerusalem did not like that they were back doing what they were doing. And they were doing everything they could to stop them. And so Jerusalem was exposed. It had no walls to protect them. Now, aren't you glad that we don't have to worry about this type of injustice anymore in our society? And no, I'm not referring to a southern border wall, okay? So if you went there, that's not what I'm talking about. But I'm talking about people in our city, in our community, in our counties, who are what we would consider kind of the less than in society, that are left just unprotected, I can think of a whole county with schools, schools that some of them are are difficult, that have had forms of protection removed just this last year. The school resource officers pulled out of our Jefferson County schools. Many schools which we can read through and know that there's weapons and guns being brought to. We have these kind of injustices right here in our community. Right here in our community. And we, as followers of Christ, should be mindful of groups that can't necessarily protect themselves. And we should be raising a voice towards that. We should be doing something towards that. There are systemic injustices within our country. And I know it's hard for us to hear these things, but we have to open our eyes and say, there are things that are wrong in our society. And as followers of Christ, we need not necessarily get so wrapped up in our political beliefs. We need to look at the compassion and love that God shows us through His Son, Jesus Christ, and our hearts should be stirred To raise a voice when we can raise a voice. To bring about action when we can bring about action. And that doesn't mean that we just type something on Facebook. But that as a collective people, we do something about these things. Because God cares about human flourishing, and you should too. Nehemiah doesn't just leave well enough alone. You don't see him. See, because I struggle with, this is what I struggle with. I hear about injustices and I'm like, oh God, do something about that. Okay, let's go for ice cream. Right? How many times do we do that? We read about something and I'm so upset about it. Oh, Chick-fil-A's over here. The drive through's too long now. That's an injustice. We get sidetracked so easily. And Nehemiah doesn't. He doesn't leave well enough alone. 
He responds to the blessings of God upon his life because if we look in his life, even though he was in exile, he was living a blessed life. We'll unpack that a little bit. So our next point this morning, Nehemiah responded to God's blessing and left a place of comfort. Okay, Nehemiah responded to God's blessing and left a place of comfort. Nehemiah 2.1 says this, In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took wine and gave it to the king. How do we know that he left a place of comfort? This passage, that verse right there, reveals something to us. Nehemiah was the king's cupbearer. That was his title. Nehemiah was, was living the life. He was likely, the cupbearer was the person that tested the food and drink for the king to make sure it wasn't poisoned. So this was a person that really needed to be trusted, right? Because oftentimes kings were taken down because someone would poison them. And so Nehemiah was the cupbearer. He's living the life. He was the king's most trusted aide. He was probably... Uh, privy to a lot of information. I'm sure the king probably divulged things to him because he was such a trustworthy person. What's amazing is that we see, this is just kind of an aside, we see God's people in exile time and time and time and time again being put in places of incredible trust. It's kingdom character. It's godly character. We see it all the way back in the book of Genesis. Joseph, right? Time after time after time after time, he's put in incredible positions of trust among some of the most sinful leaders in the history of the world, but they entrusted much with these godly men. So Nehemiah is living the life. He enjoyed the fruit of this. He basically was just chilling with the king and sipping good wine all day long. He was enjoying the choicest of food and luxury. And yet, in the midst of this, we see at the beginning of this passage that he seeks truth. He's not willing to just be complacent and sit back and say, man, it really stinks over in Jerusalem, but this is a good life right here. Nehemiah seeks out the truth. He could have just turned a blind eye. He could have ignored the situation, but Nehemiah opens with this. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. It says this, And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant. Nehemiah takes action. Hey, what's going on with our brothers and sisters back in the land? I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile. And also about Jerusalem. And when he heard the news, what? He mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of... He was struck by what was going on to his people. He was struck that they were suffering and they were hurt and that things weren't going well. The plight of his people, human beings, impacted him. We'll find out a little bit more about his reaction, the prayer that he launches into next week. But we witness right here in this passage, in these four verses, Nehemiah just weep over his people, wrecked. 
over the oppression and suffering of what? Of human beings. But also in Nehemiah, we learn something else. Nehemiah is is very much about physical suffering and and attacking those things and, and seeking after ways to fix those things, but also... He doesn't just leave it to the physical, but he focuses on the spiritual, spiritual flourishing. Which brings us to this point. Flourishing is not only physical, but also spiritual. Flourishing is not only physical, but also spiritual. You see, all too often the church can get caught, focused entirely too much on one area and not enough on on the other. We can get caught too much on the physical and ignore the spiritual. Or we can get caught too much on the spiritual and not be meeting people's physical needs. There's a balance of both. We can learn an important lesson from Nehemiah. He led the people in correcting their physical need. But we find out through this this story that he also gave them the truth. He called them back to God. Our concern for human flourishing doesn't stop with meeting the physical needs of our community, but emphasizes the greater spiritual need. Also, with this, how can I expect someone to hear about their spiritual need when they have physical needs? Jerusalem is is without city walls if... Nehemiah goes in there and says, you guys need to recommit to God. Hope everything works out for you. See you later. He doesn't. They rebuild the walls. And then as we'll find as we journey through Nehemiah, there's this beautiful time where God's people come together and renew their commitment to him. They were exposed and no amount of preaching was going to keep them safe from the outside pressures of of their enemies. It would be like going into a war zone and preaching to soldiers who are being shot at. They're more concerned about getting hit by a bullet than hearing what you're saying. These people needed protection. Nehemiah leads them in meeting both of those needs. And it's a beautiful picture for us as the church to be a people that is very much about meeting the physical needs of people in our community, in our church first. We should be very much about meeting the physical needs of those who are in Christ. We see this in the book of Acts, that they sold and they held everything in common and they met each other's needs. And you want to know what happened? People outside of of the church saw that and they were attracted because it was different than the world. Because the world says, it's all about you. Hoard it. Keep it. Pack it. Save it away for later. Just don't give it to somebody else. But in God's economy, we we love God through what? Through loving other people. And so, many times, the, the call of Christianity in our lives is to be uncomfortable. To be willing to give up for other people. To help them meet their needs. And through that... To be able to raise a voice to their deeper and greater spiritual need. 
Nehemiah leads them in meeting both their physical and spiritual need. It's almost like Nehemiah gives us a glimpse into the ministry of Jesus Christ. He's a picture of Jesus. Luke 19.41 says this, this is Jesus. As he, as Jesus approached Jerusalem and saw the city, what did he do? He wept. He wept over it. Jesus weeps for his people. Because in this instance, he has, he's brought them the truth. This is in the, the final week of his ministry. He has shown his power through delivering the poor and the sick from physical affliction. And yet he knows that the greater majority of the Jews, his people, will reject the one that they have waited for. In this passage, Jesus has, has entered Jerusalem as king, and in just a few days, he will be put to death on a criminal's cross. And yet, God wasn't caught off guard by this. God always has a plan. He's not caught off guard that the people that he has has been so gracious and faithful to would reject him once again, but it's the means that God used to save the world. God doesn't waste anything. Nothing is wasted in his economy. And within this, we see God's holiness bursting out of the box, bursting out of the temple. In Genesis, God's holiness is among Adam and Eve. He's there dwelling with his people. What? But sin, right? And then his holiness dwells with the Israelites in a tent called the tabernacle. And then his holiness resides in the temple. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, we begin to see God's holiness, in a sense, start to burst out of the box. The temple is, is a point of emphasis in Ezra. And in Nehemiah, the walls take center stage, and the people of God are working together. Priest and common man working together to build God's holiness is breaking through. And then we see God's holiness among us in the person and work of Jesus Christ. And then God's holiness is given to the followers of Christ. The new temple where his holiness dwells within us. Not because of anything that we have done, but because of the work of Christ he imparted his Holy Spirit within his people, making us holy. If you are in Christ in here, church, the holiness of God dwells within you in the Holy Spirit. It's amazing. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 27, 45 to 51. So we have Jesus entering into Jerusalem as king, and he weeps over Jerusalem. In this passage, we witness the death of Christ. It says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi! Eloi, 
Lema Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a salve, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. And when Jesus has cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. And at that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The place where God had dwelled, his holiness in the temple, the curtain is torn. God's people, God himself came to his people, his holiness among us, walking the face of this earth in Jesus Christ. Living the perfect life that we couldn't live. Nailed to a cross for our sin. And at the moment of his death, the curtain in the temple was ripped in two. God's holiness, a gift to us, not because of anything that we have done, but because of the work of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection from the dead. God's holiness has emerged. It's no longer confined, but has burst forth in the person and work of Jesus, the perfect life, death, and resurrection of our Savior. And I want you to hear this this morning, church. It's available for you. The greatest flourishing. It's here for you. Salvation in Christ, no matter what you've done. It's available no matter if you're rich or poor. Your economic status doesn't exclude you from salvation. Society may push you down, but Jesus loves you. No matter if you're black or white, it's available. No matter your age, child or adult, it's available. Children were treated as slaves in this society, and Jesus comes and says, bring the children to me. No matter your sin, sexual sin, hatred, abortion, gossip, lust, dishonesty, adultery, addiction, the cross of Christ has overcome all of our sins. The blood of Christ has overcome. And hear this, He loves you. He doesn't just cover your sin, but He loves you. And he, God calls you His child. It's beautiful. He invites you in. Jesus has invaded your space this morning. And let me ask you this question. What are you going to do about it? What are you going to do about it? For those of you who know Christ, how are you going to respond to the grace and mercy that Christ has shown you? Nehemiah got grace and mercy. He left a place of comfort to go and to be among his people and to lead them in rebuilding and to lead them back to God. If you're in Christ, how are you going to respond to the grace and mercy that Christ has shown you? 
Because God did not set you free from sin for you to just be complacent and lazy. He has set you free for something better. To seek after him, to seek the flourishing of our city, to see lives transformed through the gospel of Jesus Christ. If you are skeptical of Jesus, how are you going to respond this morning? So I know our society says, you can have your way, and you can have your way, and we all end up in the same place. But I declare this truth this morning. Jesus is the only way. He is the truth and the life. And salvation can only be had through Jesus Christ. And the work of Christ has been discussed this morning. You can't ignore it. You don't get to stand before God one day and say, God, I never heard about that because you sat in North Bullet Christian Church and you have heard the gospel preached. What are you going to do about it? How do you respond this morning? Hear this. Jesus has conquered sin and death. He's conquered the grave and he has extended his hand to you. You don't even need to come. He's extended his hand out to you and he will pick you out of the dust out of the mud, out of the muck, out of the mire, and he will give you new life and new purpose like you could never believe. He offers you this. He offers you forgiveness of your sins. He covers them. He offers you true joy. The world gives you fake thing after fake thing after fake thing and tells you, this is going to make you feel good. And then that's not enough, so I seek after the next thing, and this is going to make you feel good. Baloney. Christ gives you the real thing. He gives you true joy. He gives you this, true fulfillment. Everything in this world has disappointed me. Jesus has never disappointed me. He gives you this, true purpose. You have a purpose in your life. He gives you hope in the midst of pain. He gives you hope in the midst of suffering. When you have hurt, you can look to Christ and know that he has hurt along with you. He was betrayed by a man that he spent your years investing into. His people rejected him. He did nothing wrong. And he was placed on a cross and beaten and ripped apart because he loved us. He knows suffering. And he loves you enough to call you his friend. To bring you into his family. So I ask you this morning, if you're skeptical of Jesus, how are you going to respond to that? Because you don't just get to be aloof to it. You have to respond. You either, you either say, no, thank you, and you walk out that door, or you say, Jesus, I trust you, and I place my, my faith in you, and I give my life to you. Because you've forgiven all of my sin. He gives you this as a free gift. 
Just receive it. Trust him with your life. And I can promise you, and I can look around this room, person after person after person, your life will never be the same. True joy, true hope, true fulfillment, true purpose, only through Jesus Christ. As the band comes forward, and in a few minutes, we're going to respond to the grace and mercy of Jesus through receiving communion through the Lord's Supper. We do this each and every Sunday here as a reminder of the great sacrifice of Christ on the cross. The bread represents his body that was broken for you, and the juice represents his blood that was spilled on the cross. It was an atonement for your sin, a covering. You're covered in the righteousness of Christ. And each and every week we can come to the table and we can remember his sacrifice. And I'd ask you this morning, as you come to the table, think about your life. Think about how you're going to respond to this message. We don't just get to be complacent. We want to seek after God and His will to show us the areas of our lives that we need to see transformed. And hear me in this. If you're hurting, if you're tired, if you're suffering, Jesus loves you. This church loves you. There'll be leaders across the front of this room that want to pray for you this morning. We want to carry your burden with you. And we do that because of the great love of Jesus for us. And then during the last song, we'll receive an offering. It's a way that we can show our joy and our gratefulness for the blessings that God has given us in a way that we can meet physical needs in our community and around the world through mission work, through evangelism, and through helping others. And then we're going to sing together. And I want to encourage you to think about the message that you have heard. Think about the work of Christ on the cross as you sing, and sing like people that have been redeemed, that have victory, have a grateful heart for the work of Christ for you. Let's pray.